Some of these statistics probably won't surprise you that 84% of Americans believe in the afterlife. That's not really a shock, probably, to you. 82% believe in heaven, so that's their form of afterlife. It probably doesn't accord perfectly with what maybe you think, but, but at least some heaven experience where they're with God. 69% believe in a hell. Now, those numbers don't really surprise me in any large measure. The number that surprised me was it's, it's half of 1% believe that they're going there. So, so 69% believe in the existence of hell, but virtually no one believes they're going there. Now, this is a, this is a really challenging message to preach because of its, its truthful severity. Because Jesus seems to contradict those numbers that I just gave you. Now, we've been looking at the kingdom of God through Matthew 13. Think about it. One chapter, it's a sermon on the sea, and it's just these eight parables that he gives us. That's all he speaks of, to us in parables. And he's been teaching us about the kingdom of God. And we've learned about how to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the parable of the sower? The seed is sown. They've heard the gospel. It's fallen on fertile soil, and it, and it moves. There's belief, and people move in faith. Others don't. They hear the gospel, but it's like rocky soil or soil among thorns or stony path, and they don't respond by faith. So, so Jesus explains how the nature of the kingdom is such that you enter it by faith, by hearing the gospel. Then we learned that this kingdom is going to grow, but it's going to grow in the midst of evil. This is, this is a shocker to the audience. They're thinking if God brings this kingdom, it's going to flat, flatten evil. But it doesn't. Evil coexists. And we saw in this parable of the wheat and the tares, they kind of grow up together. But don't be, don't be shocked and, and don't at all be surprised, but the kingdom will be victorious. It's going to be like a mustard seed that grows into the biggest tree. It's going to be like leaven working its way through the dough. This kingdom is going to come to full victory. And it's going to actually do it in very insignificant, very minor ways that you might miss if you weren't paying attention. This same kingdom that's going to grow in the midst of evil, that's going to grow to its fullness, this kingdom, in fact, is going to be of incalculable value. A value that is it it surpasses, opening the box, I cannot believe the value of what I have in Christ. That's the nature of this kingdom. And now we get to the last parable. After hearing how to enter it and how it's going to grow with evil, how it's going to be victorious, the immense value of it, and then we come to the end, which makes sense. How is the kingdom going to close in this present age? How's it all going down in the end is what he's dressing. He's going to talk about this parable of the net. And what we're going to see here, and I want to try to get our minds around it, but we're going to see that this kingdom is going to, is going to come in a day of judgment, as the scriptures would have us learn. And this day of judgment is going to come with a certainty. It it is certain. I I want you to leave this room certain as you're sitting here. This day will come, and it's going to come with a separation. This this division is going to play. This discrimination, this distinguishing is going to take place. And it's going to be ending with a deep sorrow for those outside of the kingdom. A profound regret. Uh, one that we can only begin to scratch at imagining. That, that's what this kingdom's going to be like. 
J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century. And what he said is about this parable. He said, these verses need belief and consideration more than they need exposition. In other words, you'll understand it. You're going to leave here understanding, and I have no doubt. Will you believe it? And will you give it deep consideration? That's what I'm asking for. These aren't my words, thankfully. These are the words of Jesus Christ, the one that actually talked about hell more than anybody else did. So let's, with great humility and reverence, let's look at this Matthew 13, and I'll be reading verses 47 to 52. The last two verses are kind of Jesus' editorial on it, so we'll get to those in the end. Matthew 13, 47. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, then Jesus in 51 says, because he's speaking to his disciples at this point, he says, have you understood these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. It's kind of confusing, but I'll explain the relationship between those two sections. But let's first look at this day of judgment. It's going to come with a certainty. You see the parable begins very clearly. Anybody in the audience would have known what he was talking about. This idea of throwing a net into the sea and gathering all the fish. He didn't throw a fishing line with a hook. It's not that. It's not a little seining net, which I used to have as a kid. We'd go through the, the water and the shallow waters trying to catch minnows to fish or even soft shell crabs. But this is a drag net. It's a big net. This thing could be hundreds of meters long. And they would tie one end to the shore, and they would stack it in the boat, and they would row this boat out into the sea, and they would kind of do it like in a half-moon or semicircle fashion, dropping the net as they're going along all the way back to shore. Now, the net that was dropped, of course, had weights on the bottom of it, so it'd sit on the sea floor. The top had these corks in it to keep it above the surface of the water. And the idea was when, when that big circle was made with the net, then all the men, it could take up to half a dozen, a dozen men, they would begin pulling this thing in, and it would gather everything in its path. And there wasn't anything, trash, seaweed, good fish, bad fish, turtles, eels, snakes, whatever. It's all coming in. And then they would begin to sort it. This is the way they would, this is the way they would get fish. Now, Jesus, what's he telling us here in this kind of picture of gathering everything in its path? Some people want to say he's talking about evangelism. This is the way you're going to lead people to faith. This is how the kingdom's going to grow. I I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think it's speaking about the growth of the kingdom in terms of evangelism, look at 49. 49 says, so it will be at the end of the age. We clearly have a marker. This is the end of the kingdom. This is the end of the present age. You'll also notice that it's the angels that are gathering. It's not the messengers or the earthly messengers or the disciples that are preaching the gospel. It's these angels gathering all to God. And you notice that what's coming in the net is fish of every kind. That word kind means race or tribe. What he's saying is every ethnicity, every people, every society, 
every single person is going to be brought before God on that day. John MacArthur makes the point that he's not worried about the particulars of judgment. You know, we have a great white throne judgment. You have judgment of works. In various scriptures, you have different types of judgments. This is just saying, folks, everybody, no matter what race, creed, color, the net is going to pull everything in, and we're going to be standing before God. Now, the parable of the wheat and tares talked about the coexistence of evil. This will be speaking about the end of it. It's all coming to him. There's a certain day approaching us that we will stand before God. So why doesn't this grip us more? I mean, this is, this is big stuff. I mean, this, this would rival any headline on any newspaper. And, and yet, last week, yours truly was convicted over the last stanza of a song we were singing about, do not tarry, Lord, come quickly. And I'm thinking, when was the last time I asked God to come quickly? Do I not want him? And I was immediately convicted last Sunday, thinking, I haven't even asked the Lord to come. I haven't even, I haven't even, as if this world is going to somehow be better than the one he brings. No, keep it up there for a while, Lord. I need more time down here because I'm having such a great time. I, I, I was convicted by that. So why don't we think about it? Why doesn't it grip us? Why doesn't it command our attention more than it does? And I was thinking, well, one, I think we're easily distracted people. And we're easily distracted because we're very busy people and we're very important people. And, and, and I think that in our importance, or it might just not be, maybe you're not busy, maybe you're not distracted, maybe you're just comfortable in life. And that has a distracting feature to it. We are, our lives are consistent. I mean, one day to the next day to the next day. And, and that, that almost breeds a sense of comfort that it will always be that way. And we always think, well, yeah, it's going to keep being that way. We have nice homes. When it's cold out, we turn the heat on. If it's hot out, we turn the air on. We have comfortable cars. We have good jobs. If we get sick, we just go to Rex. I mean, it's, it's comfortable for us. We kind of like it here. We get distracted. I think many of us are going to be surprised over this day. Although it's been a certainty, you've heard it from me, it's certainly coming. It still catches us off guard. In fact, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and he warns them. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we don't need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon you. It will be that fast. It'll be a surprise. We don't want to be surprised. We get easily distracted. Perhaps you do. Others of us, maybe you're not distracted. Maybe the delay is just such that you've given up on it. You know, we've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it. He's coming back, he's coming back. Judgment, judgment. We've heard it and we've just kind of tuned it out, if you will. It's kind of like the Aesop's fable, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Right, the, the shepherd boy, he cries, woof, 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 and all the villagers come to protect the flock and to help him, and huh, he's just, it's, it's his form of humor. They go back, and he, a little while longer, cries, woof, and they come flying out. And he does that enough time, eventually the wolf does come, he does cry, woof, and nobody comes. Well, they've heard enough. It wasn't there. I wonder if that's the case with us. You've just heard it so much, and now you're 30, or you're 40, or you're 50, and he hasn't come back. Ah, he's not going to come back in my lifetime. Well, remember, just remember, 
Peter confronted the same thing. And he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, and he said, in the last days, people will come, scoffers, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as has been since the beginning of creation. Now, they fail to realize something, and I'll get to that in the end. But the reality of it is we just, the delay kind of causes us to fall asleep, if you will. Others, I think, and this is probably more appropriate for us, I think we find the doctrine distasteful. We don't like it. It's a distasteful doctrine. This idea of Christ coming in power and separating and putting these unrighteous people in a place of gnashing teeth. I think it's distasteful. You know, most of us have been raised in a culture that's very tolerant. And for me to come out and to give any moral judgment on life, I would be castigated in the public square for that. I I understand it. I don't love it all the time, but I get it. We live in a culture of which God is no longer a foundational principle. don't know that he ever was in, in large measure in other cultures, but at least in ours he's not. And so for me to come and declare some moral judgment by God on a culture that really doesn't use God in any, in any form of foundational way, it is obnoxious of me. Why am I right and you're not right? And that's why we say, you know, we say, well, who are you to say that? Who are you to criticize me for that kind of behavior? That's why we have this rhetoric and struggle that we do. One comes in with an understanding of the supremacy of God over life, and the other doesn't. So, of course, you're going to have a conflict. We live, and so when I bring a message of judgment, this idea of judgment to the culture, are you kidding me? That's just old-time religion. It doesn't work in this culture anymore. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is the church has misused the doctrine. The church, sadly, has treated judgment and the threat of judgment as a, as a tool to scare people either into the kingdom or into doing what the church has wanted them to do. And shame on us in the church. We've used the doctrine. We haven't handled it with humility and sadness and grief and, and mourning over, can you believe what I just read to you? as opposed to we read it either casually or we use it as a tool of our own desire to achieve some end with people. I think it's distasteful. And so what I'd ask you to do, you're here with me, we're talking about this. Would you deliberate with me on this topic, on the certainty of judgment? I mean, I know that you can do this. I know that you have future events that you plan for, that you think about. You go on vacations. You make large purchases. I mean, you make, you make decisions in today that are going to have an impact on tomorrow. You do it. I mean, anybody here that's worked for any number of years, you've already thought about retirement. You've already begun planning for it. You spend time consulting advisors and, and strategists and, and people who are smarter than you. You develop portfolios. You review them. You make changes. And anybody that didn't do that would be an idiot. Anybody that didn't do that would be a fool for not planning. They would be guilty of presumption of sin. I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm not going to plan. That's not what we would advance here at all. You make those plans, but when do you think of this day? You You plan for retirement, but do we plan for eternity? I mean, how many hours have you spent this much, this month, on looking at your future? 
in this present life, but not looking at your future in the next life. It's incredible. I, I think we're, if, if we don't want to consider judgment, then we don't want to consider grace. We don't want to consider the cross. May I remind you, God's already judged. God's already driven a stake in the ground. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 3. God brought judgment on the first man and the first woman. He did. He brought a curse down. He separated. Remember, judgment, the word judgment in Greek just means separate. That's all it means, crisis, separate. And, and so he separated the man and the woman from himself. And then we see judgment in the flood, right? He saves righteous Noah and his family. But what's he do? He rains down judgment upon the people. God does bring judgment. We see it in the Tower of Babel. People got together, wanted to build a name for themselves, so he judged them by giving them different languages, separate them, destroy the building project. And we see it in the history of Israel. You see this nation over and over be given blessing and blessing and mercy and mercy, and they rebel and they rebel. Finally, he said, enough, and he exiles them to Babylon. That's a form of judgment. They were separated from the land. So God judges. And of course, if you're a Christian, you know the critical judgment of all judgments is the cross of Christ. I mean, that is God's judgment. That wasn't just some nice little love me, Graham. This is God judging sin. So God sends the Son. This is, this is the epicenter of our faith. God sends the Son who lives perfectly before the Father that the Father could say, I am well pleased in Him. What an encouragement. What an affirmation. What a statement that He is the Messiah. And then God dumps the sins of his people upon the Son, and then God judges Jesus for our sin. We know he judged him because in Psalm 22, Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you separated from me? He bore the judgment. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus bore this judgment. Now for the Christian here, doesn't your heart soar over that? Doesn't your heart just revel in one has come for you to bear the judgment? Think about in John five twenty four, the promise we have, Jesus in his own words says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And the reason you've crossed over is because he was judged for you. Incredible to think about that. The certainty of judgment is rooted in the fact that it's already certainly happened and it's going to happen again. If Jesus has come once, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas and if we revel over the incarnation and celebrate his coming, won't he surely come again? Isn't it certain that he's going to come again in power and glory? This should cause us to be stirred either with hope or with a degree of fear, a reverent fear. So that's the first thing I want to say. In this parable, you see the certainty of judgment. It's coming because it's already come. In fact, John the Baptist, when he said to the Pharisees coming out, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Judgment has already begun, and it begun with Christ himself. Okay, the second thing we see is that this judgment this day of judgment is going to be a day of separation. You can imagine it as the fishermen are pulling the net in and the fish are coming in. And, and they are, you know, remember, for the Jewish person, he couldn't eat fish unless it had a scale, unless it had scales on it. And so they would take the fish with scales, keep them. They also might catch an eel. 
They might catch a catfish. They wouldn't eat a catfish because it looked like a snake representing Satan. And so the other fish, they would either throw back in the sea or they would use them as fertilizer. And Jesus is using this, this time of separating what fish can, can be kept and what fish could not be. Jesus is using this to say this is going to be on the day there's going to be a separation. In fact, the Old Testament, the net is often used as a form of judgment. And this judging between the righteous and unrighteous, the good and the evil, those in the kingdom and those that are not, there's going to be this separation. But what are these two groups? What do these groups say? Well, the righteous, of course. Who are the righteous? Well, the righteous are the ones that heard the sowing of the gospel and they believed by faith. And it fell on the soil of their heart. And it began to produce a fruit. That's the righteous. The righteous are the ones that saw the treasure and saw its immense value and sold everything to get it. The righteous are the ones that are like leaven working in their lives, that you see change taking place in your life. That's how you know you've been made righteous. You see the outworking of God's Spirit in your life. The righteous are the ones that have repented of their sins, believed in Christ, and said, I I need to be delivered from myself and my sin. Please deliver me. Now, Now, the unrighteous or the evil in this parable, who are they? Well, they're probably religious people. Maybe they're they're you. They're moral. They've heard the gospel, right? But it, it didn't. maybe it fell on some thin soil. You shot up quickly. You believed. You had a measure of joy at the beginning, but it's kind of been snuffed out by the pleasures of the world or the thorns and the trials of the world have kind of crushed it. That, it would be that person. It might be the person that looks at the treasure and doesn't find it supremely valuable, doesn't want to part with their kingdoms to go after the kingdom of God. Maybe it's those. It's the people that haven't repented. It's the people that haven't come and said, okay, God, you have established your kingdom in Christ, and by faith I'm going to enter this kingdom through belief in Christ. But here's the fearful thing about the separation. It's absolute. It's permanent. It's final. There is no later commingling. This isn't like, well, I'm still going to get to see my uncle on the other side. There's no altering of the state of being after this day. There's no second chance later. It's set in place at that day. Now, folks, if you hear this, and if you believe it, then it's, it's good news for some, and it's really hard news for others, isn't it? It's good news in this sense. It's good news for those of us that we do want justice served. Every one of you wants justice served. If you are victimized... There is something in you that God has placed that desires justice. There is a satisfaction, not a smug satisfaction, but a completed satisfaction that justice has been served. And we can't do that here. The the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Assads, or, or maybe the guy across the street, we can never mete out justice as God could. How could Hitler be? How could we bring justice to him? and all the crimes of humanity he committed. And you go through the history of this world. Only God will be able to bring a perfect and divine justice, and he will bring it. And that will bring a satisfaction to us. This day is good news, because justice will be served, he will be seen as holy, and a perfect retribution will be brought out. This is our theodicy. A theodicy is an explanation of how God can be great and wonderful and 
evil existing at the same time. This helps us understand. So the skeptic that says, I can't believe in the God of the Christian faith because if he's all powerful and if he's all good, then why in the world is there so much evil? Here it is right here. Because he's going to use it for his purposes in this present age and he's going to reconcile it in the next age. There will be a full accounting of all evil. That's how we understand the presence of evil right now, that there is a delay in time, but that does not mean that judgment will be not carried forth. It is hard news, though. It's hard news because we love third, fourth, fifth chances. We don't like to be told A or B. We always want to see. We always want to take a pass. This is hard news, but hard news is not compassionless news. You know, if you love someone, you warn them. You know, when we say to the kids, hey, it's raining, drive, drive carefully. Uh, uh, why do you always say drive carefully? Well, because we love you. And we're hoping that maybe it would cause you to perhaps slow down when you're driving on slick roads. It may bother kids as they hear it. It's always born out of love. I don't say to the neighbor as he's going, hey, drive carefully. I, I don't love the guy. Well, maybe, not really. could never figure out why neighbors came, didn't come to our church. <laughs> so you, those you love, you warn. God is exercising grace to warn us of this. So it is hard news. But this, this judgment that is certain, that will eventuate in a separation, is going to bring sorrow. And this is where I want you I want you to try to imagine with me this scene because um, you can read over it and it will be like water off a duck's back or you can let it soak a little and I think it will have more of an impact. So the scene is that this certain judgment that brings a separation will lead many to a deep sorrow, more than half of 1%. I'm sad to imagine. And that is that when the angels gather the righteous and the unrighteous and separates them, the unrighteous are put in a fiery furnace. Now, there's nothing said about the destiny of the righteous. It's not spoken of. It is in plenty of other scriptures, but not in this one. But the destiny of the wicked is very, very clear. The non-believer, the one opposed to God, the one that um, has heard the gospel and it hasn't gripped them, the one who's just moving through life as, as if he were the center of the universe, the one who gives God little thought, the one who has justified his sin as the result and the problem of everybody else. You know the people, we all have them in our families. This fiery furnace is a metaphor. What a metaphor does in Scripture is it takes something earthly that you and I understand and it uses it to, to point to a greater reality of an existence we haven't yet had. Now, the sobering thing about a metaphor is the metaphor is never as terrible as the reality that it points to. And so if you think of a fiery furnace as bad, it is not less than the metaphor. But don't think for a minute this is some form of annihilationism where you're torched and it's kind of like you're dust and ashes and it's all over at that point. 
There's no annihilationism here because he goes right on and says, in that place. It's a place. There's a, a place. I don't know what kind of place it is, but in that place there'll be gnashing of teeth and weeping. And what I want you to see in that metaphor is an utter hopelessness. I, I don't get into trying to tease out all the details of a metaphor because I don't, I don't want to be importing my own understanding. But here's what I can say. There's an utter hopelessness, an absolute unhappiness of what was lost. So those who had turned against or who'd failed to respond to these overtures of God's grace in their life, there is a hopelessness that will be profound. Matthew Henry says it this way. It's an inconsolable hopelessness. There's no consoling it. There is a, can you imagine the ultimate regret that you can never go back and undo or repair what you've done. I, I mean, it would be so heavy and so burdening, it would be overwhelming. The fact that you can't change it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, and I've quoted this before, when Christ returns, how awful to know that all of it was true and that it's too late to do anything about it. And not just the not just the the comfortless hope, there's no hope. But then the guilt, the guilt. You now see God for who he is, and you see him in all of his glory. You see him in his perfection, his kindness. You see the work of Christ. You see the, you see the person of Christ with the, with the holes and the, and the spear. And you see him, and it's all true. And then your guilt comes on over how you have lived in ignorance to him. I mean, it's a profound thought. That the separation will lead to such sorrow. So, so imagine with me, if you will, what would you feel if you had neglected so great a salvation? I'm not looking to make anybody feel guilty here. I'm looking just to paint with a few simple words a picture of what this end day leads to. If you're not a Christian, I guess you can be in hardened and fast disbelief and say, I just don't choose to believe it. Well, that's, I, I get it. That's a position you can hold. I would have you reconsider that. I, I mean, I, the one thing I don't want is any of us to be bold and assertive. Like, you know what? I'm going to be the captain of my soul, and I've lived a sufficient life, and I'm going forward. If you can't even prevent your own death, I don't know how in the world you're going to prevent anything after that death. So, so I, I, would just, I would ask for humility before this. I, I would just ask for consideration of these things. I would persuade you to think about these things in, in greater measure. For the, uh, yeah, for the Christian here, I would think this would make us want to crawl out the door. I, I mean, how could we ever be bold and proud and arrogant when grace has opened our eyes to these things? I mean, how, how could we not just love one another in here Whatever they've done to us at the end of the day, I mean, whatever people have said or done, at the end of the day, we have been saved and spared this. I mean, wouldn't it just make us the most humble, joyful, open-hearted people? I mean, it just makes me think, when, when this is cared for by Christ, you're very different in my eyes. And, and it would make us just filled with a degree of joy. Just to, I would ask you to consider that. Do you have that joy? When you think about it, when you meditate on the nature of passing 
through judgment into life, then will it not twist the way you look at life today? So, so what we have here is a very simple parable. I think J.C. Rawls is correct. It's easy to explain. Hey, this judgment's coming with certainty. This judgment is going to be a time of separation, and it's going to lead many to deep and profound sorrow. I, I pray if you're, if you're not a Christian here, you would consider these things. I would love to speak with you about it further. If you are a Christian, I pray that you're encouraged. I, I pray that Christ would be valueless to you right now. I, I pray that his surpassing value would go beyond what you felt it was before you came in here this morning. But here's the question to you. Let me take you back to 51 and 52. Because Jesus has been now talking to his disciples, and he turns to them and says, have you understood these things? How, do you get it? Do you get it? Now, they said, yes, we get it. Now, I think that probably a little ambitious on their part, perhaps. I mean, don't know that they really got it. I think they really believed it, but I don't know that they really got it. Just like I believe many of you really believe it, but I don't know that we really get it. So when I say, have you understood these things? What I'm saying is, do you really understand that it's simply by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hearing hitting your ears of faith and believing that we enter the kingdom. We enter the kingdom by faith in Christ alone, not in any person you've known or anything you've done. We enter by faith alone. Do you get the fact that in this Christian life, you are going to be walking alongside evil and brokenness? And so you shouldn't be surprised when you suffer. You shouldn't be surprised when tragedy comes upon you. As Peter said, why are you surprised at the fiery ordeal you're enduring? as if something strange were happening to you. Why? Because we're Christians. The Christian understands that God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world are butting heads right now, but it won't always be that way. And do you understand that the kingdom to which you belong is going to grow victoriously, but it's going to do it in very uncool ways. It's going to grow in ways that you've got to pay attention. God's going to do things through tragedy. Surprise, you're not looking for that. You want, the big, you want the big glitz and lights? It doesn't work that way in his kingdom. It's very nuanced. It, it's, it's very sophisticated. Do you, do you understand the value? Have you been refreshed? The kingdoms that you're holding so tightly to, can you let those go to pursue this kingdom? I mean, what are you holding to as of greater value? What would it kill you to lose? And do you not have it more in the kingdom? What would make you super happy to gain, but don't you have it in the kingdom? In other words, do you value it? And do you understand that it's going to come back with certainty? So if you understand these things, if you understand these things, then 52 kicks in. And, and I would just, before we look at 52, I just want to warn you on the folly of hearing. Right? You guys are hearing me, and I trust that you're understanding me. But hearing alone is inadequate. Hearing has to morph to belief. And then belief will always, always have its fruit of action or deed. And that's what you see in 52. In 52 he says, And he said, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. That's actually another parable. And it's very hard to understand. And I don't think I understand it fully. But, but here's a simple explanation for you. If you've heard these things, he said, have you understood these things? He says, then, every scribe has been trained for the kingdom is like a master. He's saying, if you understand these things, then you're like the master of the house. 
you're now the new scribe. A scribe in the Old Testament was a teacher of the law. Now you're a teacher of the kingdom. Remember to the disciples, he said back in the beginning of 13, he says, to you it's been made known the secrets of the kingdom. To you, to them it hasn't, but to you it has. You now know these new things. You now know to enter the kingdom is through hearing the gospel. You now know that the kingdom is going to exist with evil. You now know that this kingdom is going to be victorious through insignificant ways. You now know that the kingdom of God is a treasure beyond measure. You now know that this kingdom is going to come back with power and authority when Christ comes and gathers in all peoples. You know those things, and if you know those things, you're like the master of the house. You have to bring the new, that is what I've just told you, with the old. So all the Old Testament promises of God, everything contained in the Old Testament, we're waiting for, we're waiting for, here it is in Christ. That's the new treasure. The old treasure is all that God promised. The new treasure is Christ. You now know those things. So if you know those things, then bring them out and share them. I mean, it really is that simple. Josh prayed it. I mean, how do we love our neighbor? How do we love our family? How do we love our coworkers? It's bringing it out. It's sharing. This is the kingdom. It's being bold about being identified with the kingdom. It's also living it, but it is speaking it. They go hand in hand. You tend to speak what you live. You live what you speak. So, so it's, a, it's a bold message. It's a clear message, I think, for us. It, for me, is a sobering message. Because I'm speaking to you, and you're listening. This pertains to us. So let's take a minute right now, if we could. And, and what I want to do is I just want to have a moment of silence with you. And, and I have been praying that the Spirit of God that was given to us because Christ is with the Father, the Spirit of God who has been sent to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness, that he will convict our sins where we need to be convicted. But let me just leave you with this last thought before we go silent. We're going to hear this and we're going to move on. And, uh, and we can make little of it if we want. And, and I was kind of instructed in this comparison I read once. So when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and they were in the storm with Jesus... And the storm was so fierce that these fishermen who had experience on the water thought they were going to die. They're wide awake, screaming, they're terrified, they're, they're out of control, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Doesn't seem to be real concerned about losing physical life. Fast forward with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to face the judgment of God. He's wide awake, screaming to the Father. What are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. Interesting. They're awake when they're about to lose their physical existence, but they're sleeping when it comes to their eternal existence. Let's not make the same mistake. Let's, let's not sleep. Let's not consider of low value these things. Let it stir us up that we would be awake too. So let's, let's awake Appeal to God for mercy and grace silently, and then uh, an elder is going to close us in uh, after a few minutes. So let's just speak with God about these things and from where you're at. Thank you.